He knew how to play second fiddle, which is the most difficult instrument in all God's orchestra to learn how to play. He took his stand with the lonely and unpopular old Jeremiah and went with him into exile in Egypt. And yet within this man there was a play of mixed motives, it seems. When he wrote this prophecy of Jeremiah, did he secretly hope that it would make him the top writer in the country? When he read the rules of the multitude, was he making his own bow to the public? And when he repeated it before the princes, did he have some secret pride in being sent for in the higher circles? It's easy for red-blooded youth to mix its own dreams with the ministry of the Word. And it's possible to use a heavenly mission to satisfy an earthly motive. We're all egotists by nature. Of course, we don't like egotists because they talk about themselves so much they don't give us a chance to talk about ourselves. At any rate, Baruch has the blues. Things are not going well. There's a warrant out for him, and he has to hide for his life. His future's ruined. He's raised his expectations too high. He complains that God has added trouble to trouble. Woe is me. Now, there's a lot of difference between Isaiah saying, Woe is me, in the presence of a holy God, and Baruch saying, Woe is me, in the midst of hard times. Baruch denied himself a great many things to be faithful to Jeremiah, but he had never denied himself. He denied himself many things, but he had not denied himself. A preacher may deny himself many things to get an education or to carry on his work without ever denying himself in the sense of Galatians 2.20, not I but Christ. Our Lord said, If any man will come after me, let him deny not this or that worldly pleasure, but himself. Don't forget, beloved, that there's another kind of idolaters besides lovers of the world, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasures. Lovers of their own selves. A man may renounce all other false gods and still worship that shrine. There was a popular song some years ago, I love me, I love me, I'm wild about myself. That could be a theme song for a lot of folks today. I've heard of a little boy who didn't have anything to put in the offering. So he wrote on a piece of paper, I give myself, and put that on the plate. Some of us wait a long time before we ever put that on God's collection plate. But until the Macedonians give themselves, all else that they give is a vain oblation, and the gift without the giver is bad. God wants self-service substance. That's the divine order. You can't pay God else with substance. You haven't given God yourself. You notice here that God did not say just Seek us all great things. There's nothing wrong in seeking great things. We ought to seek great things. Seek those things which are above. But he asked Beirut, Seek us all great things for thyself. You remember that Paul said, I count not my life dear unto myself. Now your life is dear. 
Everybody's life's dear. It's a precious thing. But he said, I don't count it dear to myself. It's self that spoils the picture. And God is saying today, when all around you is headed for ruin, this is no time to feather your neck. Old Matthew Henry asked, what folly is it to seek great things for ourselves here where everything is little and nothing is certain? And you remember that uh, Elisha asked Gehazi, is it a time to receive money and garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? Is this a time to pay yourself off? Modern clergymen driving down their tent pegs in this world had better think that one over. Paul says this, I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. Don't let domestic cares get you down. They that weep as though they weep not. Don't let your troubles get you down. They that rejoice as though they rejoice not. Don't let your joys get you down. They that buy as though they possess not. Don't let your possessions possess you. And they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world is passing away. I've never heard much preaching on that text. It's been in the mothballs too long. It ought to be brought out into circulation today as never before. Now the preacher of these days, like Baruch of old, faces the choice between Jeremiah and Jehoiakim between the prophet and the penknife. Jehoiakim is the first in a long line of Bible mutilators. And they still sit in high places and thrice the word of God and deny the inspiration of the scriptures. And although they are most suave and refined these days, they wield a wicked penknife. You remember that Judas betrayed our Lord not with a slap, but with a kiss. Jesus Christ is betrayed more today with a show of affection than any other way. They tell us now that the New Testament is a sufficient rule of faith and practice, and indeed it is. But do we always mean when we say that the New Testament, as it stands, or what's left of it after Jehoiakim is going through it with a penknife? We believe the individual Christian is capable of rightly interpreting the Bible under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. No man can be saved except by the Holy Spirit. No man can confess Jesus as Lord by himself. It's impossible to confess Jesus as Lord by yourself. By the Holy Spirit, no man can understand the Bible but by the Spirit. But when every man becomes his own interpreter, Without the Holy Spirit, authority passes then uh, from the Scripture and uh, from the Spirit to self. And there's no king in Israel. Every man does what's right in his own eyes, and the Bible is no longer absolute. It's obsolete. And we have to choose, therefore, between Jeremiah and Jehoiakim. And furthermore, Baruch took a position that seemed pessimistic and hopeless. Now, he could have taken it easy. He could have hobnobbed with all these false prophets, and he could have played politics with the powers that be, and he could have philosophized and cracked jokes with the ungodly and been known as broad-minded in the middle of a rover in the day of calamity. 
But he lined up with Jeremiah, who was a prophet of doom. I'd like to have a psychiatrist report on Jeremiah. I think that would be very interesting reading. While these false prophets were preaching serenity and peace of mind and healing slightly, the heard of the daughter of the people crying peace and there was no peace. Jeremiah wasn't doing that. He wasn't a pulpit tranquilizer. They accused him of not being good for morale. They said he weakens the hands of the people. The politicians and the experts and the false prophets didn't have any use for him, and it was mutual. And he called Hananiah a liar, but in an hour of extremity, Zedekiah turned to this lonely prophet and asked, Is there any word from the Lord? And it's worth all imprisonment, hardship, and ridicule to know the mind of God in the day of judgment. It's worth a night in a lion's den later to be able to be a Daniel who can stand at Belshazzar's feast and read the handwriting on the wall. I tell you, God will protect his Daniels even if he has to millennialize the lion in order to do it. The New Testament worldview today doesn't appeal to young babies who are out seeking great things for themselves. Some of these old texts are not popular in some circles. Perilous times, carcass and vultures, iniquity abounding and love abating, Matthew 24 and 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Thessalonians 2. They don't make for popular preaching now. And Paul's view of the last days just doesn't sound like Dr. Tyne did. And his uh, uh, contemporaries probably said he's just a bilious old bachelor in a Roman jail. Everything looks yellow to a jaundiced eye. Maybe he ought to learn you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar, except Paul wasn't in the fly-catching business to begin with. They were ashamed of his eschatology in some circles today. It doesn't minister to pride. It's not big enough. It's unpopular to all who are building a religious super corporation and an ecclesiastical empire down here. It doesn't sound like cooperating with the world in a program of peace and brotherhood. But we're not here to preach the bright side. I get so tired of these folks who are always looking on the bright side. These uh, pulpit Pollyannas wearing rose-colored glasses painting the clouds with sunshine, preaching Pepsi-Cola sermons for those who think young. <laughs> the right side. The Bible preaches the right side. The right side is the bright side ultimately, but not always immediately. We want it now. You may have to go through the dark to get into the light. Somebody says Christianity is a temporary pessimism with an ultimate optimism. More comfortable in the court of Jehoiakim. Have you noticed they had a fire out there? Courtyard fire, and there's one in the New Testament too. Peter denied his Lord while warming at a courtyard fire. All kinds of miserable things are done around these courtyard fires that the devil always has on hand. And whether a man denies the written word in the Old Testament or the living word in the New Testament, both times it was done by a comfortable time. The devil always has some nice arrangements made to make it easy. The folks who want to slash the word of God and deny their Lord. 
Finally, we who serve the Lord and preachers in particular need to learn this from David. This is no time to settle down in the lowlands of this world. If you're going to live for God, don't hang up your stocking for the sandy clothes of this age to fill. This is no time to be wailing, woe What does it matter whether the world notices it or not? What does it matter whether we're outstanding or just among those present? Aren't we the friends of the bridegroom and our joy is to be in the bridegroom's voice? Aren't we to decrease that he may increase? Aren't we to be God's seed corn, God's grain of wheat, to fall into the ground and die? And that's the important, that's the heart of that verse, because it said twice a, if it fall in the ground, except it die, but if it die, twice, except it die, if it die. Going to a mission field never made a missionary out of anybody. They have to die. Going into a pastorate never made a preacher out of anybody. Uh, it, it's not being put into the ground. It, it, that's not the emphasis. Cast into the ground, located somewhere, yes, but you have to die. It's the dying that My father used to keep a little country grocery store and we got in our garden seeds I always remember in the winter and I couldn't wait for time to come to open up the box. What pretty little packages, you know, and they're red and green and yellow, the beets and the tomatoes and all the rest of it. But we never would have had a bite to eat if we'd left the seeds in those pretty little packages. They had to be taken out and put in the old dirty ground and die. Now on Sunday morning, I look over the crowd many a time, I think about that box of garden seeds out there, the saints all are, and they're red, and they're yellow, and they're green, and they're blue. But you know, we've got too much packaged Christianity and not enough planted Christianity today. It has to be planted, and it has to die. Can you come well across the crown? The rainbow or the thunder, I fling my soul and body down for God to plow them under. Somebody has said that not wanting a thing is comparable to possessing it. Better than having the treasures of this world is to be independent of them. Some of you have heard of old Uncle Bud Robinson, the holiness preacher. He was quite a character. Some years ago, some friends took him to New York for a trip, and they showed him the skyscrapers and the ships going out to Europe and the subways and everything. On that evening, he was praying. He said, Lord, I thank you that I got to see this big city today. Thank you for letting me see the skyscrapers and the ships going out and all the rest of it. He said, Lord, the thing I want to thank you for most of all is I didn't see a thing I wanted. <laughs> oh, that's a great way to go through this one. That's the remedy for the misery of David. And unless you're willing to renounce all selfish dreams and look to God alone for message and power and calls and finances and results, you don't have any business in the world. God must not only be the preacher's rewarder, he must be the preacher's reward. He must be everybody's reward who goes into his service. Once earthly joy, I crave, so peace and rest. 
Now be alone, I see. Yes, that's that. Can you see what that verse says? Once I'm into this and that, now, Lord, all I want to see is just give me whatever's there. Well, that makes a world of difference. We broke nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and raiment, let us be all with content. I must confess to you that through the years I've had difficulty harmonizing our standards of success in the ministry together with the Bible pictures of the rough road the prophets cut. My New Testament tells me about the way of a cross and the way of reproach and the way of persecution and suffering. When I listen to the sharp talk in a lot of our religious gatherings and watch the scramble for top seats in the synagogue, and the wild pulling and the politicking for posh pastors, I just can't make the modern team fit the Bible words. The original pattern of the prophets and the apostles and our Lord himself doesn't fit. The image of your up-and-coming young babies out seeking great things for themselves. Well, I know the argument. Times have changed, and Christianity is more acceptable now, is it? A watered-down Christianity is. It doesn't stir up any protest. doesn't stir up any repercussions. Nothing to repercuss about. Any man who stands full square for God and righteousness today will find himself under the curse of Jehoiakim. The techniques are different. There are more clever ways of sending Jeremiah to prison now. John the Baptist's head is not brought in on the charger now. There are newer ways of decapitating prophets with more fine airs than in the old days, but any baby who lines up with Jeremiah or our Lord, and our Lord was so much like Jeremiah that some people thought he was Jeremiah, you remember? Any man who does that seems for plenty of trouble. Many a preacher today lives in an inner conflict between saying what he knows he ought to say and saying what he thinks he'd better say. There is a conflict. He isn't careful. He quits being a prophet and learns up a diplomat. Jeremiah was not interested in salary, success, advancement, prestige. He wasn't riding the greater train. He was out of step with his age, and every prophet ought to be out of step with his generation. God's man has to stand like Amos at Bethel, although Dr. Amaziah ordering out of town. You can't be an Elijah and a friend of Jezebel, both. You can't be a John the Baptist and in league with Herod. You can't be a Martin Luther and on good terms with Rome. Now, there is a kind of a prophet who works both sides of the street. Like Obadiah during Elijah's life, you remember, Obadiah sort of stood in with Ahab, hid some prophets in a cave. Of course, I never did think much of that. Any prophet you'd have to hide in a cave wouldn't be worth much in broad daylight anyhow. But uh, he was out looking for grass with Ahab when he ought have been praying for rain with Elijah. And then there was Gamaliel in the New Testament. I've heard sermons praising him. I never did take much to him. He was for keeping everything quiet in Jerusalem. And that's all some fellows want to do anyhow. 
will keep everything quiet in Jerusalem instead of lining up and casting his lot with an unpopular cause. Mr. Adlai Stevenson said, since he came to the new inn, he said, I've invented a new word. Yo, wow. And they asked, what does it mean? He said, well, it means yes and no. Either one. I've heard about yes men, but may the Lord deliver us from yo men. Great causes lie today in the dust of defeat because good men kept silent in an evil time. And there's a time when silence is not golden, it's just plain yellow. When you can't tell, when you can't tell where a man stands, you can tell. If you can't locate him, why, you can't. You know where he is. It's the business of a preacher to feed the flock and also to mourn the flock. He's not only supposed to be zealous, he's supposed to be jealous. Paul was and said, I'm jealous over you, Corinthians. I've espoused you to one husband. In this modern age of fuzziness and black and white have become gray, it's popular to talk out of both sides of the mouth as though the Bible said, let your yea be nay and your nay yea. All that God promised buried was his life, not success but survival. And yet it was success, wasn't it? For wherever the Bible's read, his name's known the world around. He lost his life to find it. He outlived himself. And in doing that, uh, he entered the who's who of heaven. We're having a lot of hand-wringing today over the fact that fewer young men are entering the ministry. I hear it everywhere. All kinds of reasons are offered for this decline. Some of these reasons amuse me and some amaze me. We're told that preachers are underpaid. We're told that their retirement benefits are not adequate. We're told that churches mistreat preachers and the word gets around. We hear that other professions are taking over many of the functions that preachers used to exercise. We're told that the preacher no longer has an, a unique place in the community. <clears throat> of course, in this space age, we have a new kind of sky pilot now, and a parson looks pretty tame beside an astronaut. And also, people don't believe the Bible as they once did, they tell us, and getting saved is not as urgent a business as it used to be, either at home or abroad. There was a time when I called the priest, Trevor. When God said go, a man didn't sit down with a pad and a pencil to figure out the incidents. When Isaiah saw God in his holiness and himself in his uncleanness and the land in its wickedness, and when he heard that divine summons ring out, Who shall I send and who will go for us? He didn't ask what income bracket is this going to put me in. And what about the retirement benefit? And will I be appreciated for what I'm worth? All we could say was, here am I, send me. Now, there was one Bible character who had his head and pencil raised. It was Peter. Lord, we've left all to follow thee. What shall we have, therefore? 
Somebody has said that Peter is the most American of all the disciples. And he anticipates us for centuries. He got cured of that the hard way. Thanks the Lord there came a day when he said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. That sounds a lot better. He's gotten around from what do I get to what can I give. And until a preacher makes that change, he's never able effectively to bid this cripple wear lies and walk. I read over in First Corinthians 4, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ, who stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards of a man be found faithful. This is a preacher's declaration of independence here. Paul says that Every preacher's work goes on trial in three courts, private judgment, I judge not mine own self, public opinion, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged the viewer of man's judgment, divine justice, he that judges me is the Lord. He said, I'll wait for the verdict of eternity. When Saul was converted, he already had status, he already had security, and an ice didn't tell him what a big church and top salary awaited him. Paul didn't even write to the jailer and tell him I want a prison cell on the east side so I can get the morning sun. He didn't even ask Timothy to look out for such arrangements. He did say, bring my old clothes. My arthritis is acting up here in this low climate. I see lovely homes over the country. Lovely homes by lakes and in the mountains. And sometimes I said, oh, now I could ride. If I could live in a place like that, then I remember that the New Testament wasn't written on vacation. A lot of it was written in jail. Paul was not in a pleasure resort when he penned the epistles. And John Bunyan didn't write children's progress from a villa in the French Riviera. Good preachers are always underpaid. They're never fully appreciated. And one good look at Calvary ought to cure a man of that is. But whether they're adequately paid or not, appreciated or not, all that's incidental. Fifty years ago, God called me to preach. It never occurred to me to figure out how many years it would be till I had it made. I was a green country boy in the red dirt hills of western North Carolina. Well, I not only didn't know anything, I didn't even suspect anything. <laughs> well, I've never been any happier in my life, and then I started out brand new, didn't know any better than just to believe the Bible, like it read. That's before I'd run into so many Bible scholars. <laughs> I can't forget a mockery I saw in an old country doctor's office in Burn, Indiana years ago. It's what you learn after you know it all of it counts. Never crossed my mind to doubt that God would take care of me. I could say the Lord's my shepherd, that's all I want. Nowadays somebody says, don't you have a foundation? Yes, I've got a foundation. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid Christ Jesus. But you must have a sponsor. I've got the same sponsor I had when we started out. Uh, don't you have some kind of a project? No, I never have had a project. I'm not raising money to buy mosquito netting for Eskimos. <laughs> I told Dr. Paul Reese, 
some years ago. I said, you know, I'm going to have to buy a banjo and learn how to pick it. And he said, what do you mean? Well, I said, preaching's not good enough. Now, you have to have a sideline. I haven't been anything but a preacher all my life. What am I going to do? He came down south later when I went up to him and he whispered, my dear, said, have you got your banjo yet? <coughs> no, I never had bought the banjo. When I started out, I didn't have social security. I didn't have financial security. All I had was eternal security. I never expected the road to be easy. I've been taught that the way was straight and narrow and not crowded. And if I was starting out today, I wouldn't have any more fear of 1964 than 1913. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I asked beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy? He through life has been my God. I'm more thrilled with the ministry in the 60s than I ever was in the 20s. I'm often disgusted with myself and sometimes disappointed in people, but I've never been more delighted with God. When God told the man to preach, he will give him everything that's needed. It's all in the contract. He's able to make all grace abound so that you'll have all sufficiency and all things in the boundary of your good work. Doesn't that just about wrap it up? We'll always have all we need to do all that God wants us to do as long as God wants us to do it. That just about takes care of it. And when you sign that contract, there aren't any loopholes in fine print. You may fail God, and men may fail you, but you abide as faithful. The young preacher who tries to figure out the occupational hazards before he begins is poor material for the ministry. That's not the road our fathers trod. They climbed the steep ascent of heaven through toil, toil, and pain. Oh, God, to us may grace be given to follow in their country.